Well, I mentioned before what a delightful series this has been. And I've mentioned on several occasions why that is. But I haven't talked to you as much about the negative side of that, and there is one. One of the great concerns for me personally, for our body of believers, has long been that we, we may drink too deeply of the spirit of this age and our understanding of the church. Treating it as increasingly optional in the life of the believer, perhaps, or or even perhaps is a bit irrelevant, such that it brings up a little embarrassment when conversation comes up about the church out in the world, and we're not necessarily all that sure how to answer. That has been a great concern of mine because we are surrounded by that kind of opinion of the church, and the church in many places hasn't done a great deal to ward off that conclusion. You may think that, that it's just the perspective of the world out there, of our rapidly individualized culture to not appreciate the church. And the culture doesn't appreciate it because they believe it's it, in their unyielding bent toward self-definition and self-actualization. And the church gets in the way of that. The church is the biggest obstacle, many think, to broad acceptance of their, their self-exalting and self-gratifying preferences. And so in addition to believing that the church is old-fashioned and irrelevant, it's just an obstacle. It gets in the way. And I'm concerned that too much of that kind of thinking can actually seep into the minds and hearts of believers. Even within the church, I'm concerned that there's not a very good, healthy, robust self-understanding. Who we are, why we're here, what we're doing in this life. A heart-level grasp of the fact that life together in the body of Christ, even apart from our mission reflects the sort of community that all people in this world actually long for. We can remember our mission, we can remember our eternal destiny, but we can forget about the fact that just life together in the body is good. And it really is what this world desires. Although they don't know where it comes from, and therefore they don't know how to attain it. So when the church gets knocked back on their heels a bit with a, a paltry understanding of who they are and what the Lord is doing among them. The world itself suffers. By and large, the world doesn't know where to find it, doesn't know, therefore, how to attain it, but life together in the church filled as it is with fallen sinners being redeemed by the saving work of Christ, the church is the only place where the sort of community that we desire is even possible. The sort of love and joy and peace. Peace. The sort of patience and kindness. Goodness. The sort of faithfulness and gentleness and self-control 
Self-control, think about that in this day and age. And the only place to find that, the only place where it can be fueled is right here among the people of God who are being aided along in their understanding and obedience to the word of God by the very spirit of God such that a little foretaste of the kind of community and relational bonding and network for which we were made actually begins breaking back into this world that has rebelled against the only one who can provide it. We need to know who we are, yes, for our own sake and for the sake of our calling, but therefore we need to know who we are for the sake of the world around us. They need this message. And we're the only ones that can bring it to them. Well, we've saved until last in this series the metaphor that helps us understand the truly joyful and, and rapturous, mind-bogglingly imaginative and imagination-stretching answer to the question, what is the church? It's the metaphor that draws in the deepest, most intimate, most satisfying experience available to human beings. The one that captures the epitome of human interpersonal communication. The highest and most most fully developed expression of human love possible while we remain in the flesh. That's the metaphor that's before us this morning. I'm talking about the human activity that stands alone as the loftiest engagement prepared for image-bearing creatures in which their entire being Body and spirit, mind and emotion, allegiance and affection, duty and devotion, in which all parts of who they are function together in a coupling that produces the fulfillment of God's very good creation design and of his original great commission to his image-bearing creatures that we read in Genesis 1, 28. But our point of reference today is not just the human coupling that produces life. Our point of reference is the full marriage covenant context of that coupling, which reflects God's own covenant love for his people. The relationship that he blessed surely not least in order to establish an illustration by which we can gain an understanding of our relationship with him. The serious and solemn nature of it, of the covenant relationship we have with him, marriage is given as that, and the very act of marriage stands at the heart of it. Straight to the point this morning, only the sweetest, most unified, most deeply satisfying and God-glorifying of all human marriages can even begin to image the fullness of joy that is ours in our relationship with God in Christ. 
Only the sweetest, most unified, most deeply satisfying, God-glorifying of all human marriages can even begin to image the fullness of joy that is ours in our eternal relationship with God and Christ. And it is only when such a marriage is invaded by infidelity or unfaithfulness that we can begin to understand the tragic sadness, sorrow, separation that occurs when we entertain any rival to our love for God or to our allegiance to Him. Human marriage sets the context for us to understand who we are in the most dramatic and vivid and meaningful in the sense of personally engaging ways that we can imagine. It's the ultimate human experience that shows us that picture. It is not an entitlement to image-bearing creatures. It's not a judgment to those who don't participate in it, and it's not a unique blessing to those who do, as though God is setting them apart from the rest of his people. It's just that the relationship itself was designed to communicate that for any who would participate in it, and it will communicate that for any who seek to live in it according to the instruction of God's word. This is the context we need to begin taking in today if we have any hope at all, any hope at all, of grasping the breathtaking implications of the closing metaphor for the church that we're looking at today, namely, the bride of Christ. God's word is so filled with this metaphor from literally Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that there's no way at all to look at every appearance of it or every allusion to it throughout the story of Scripture. It is woven in from the beginning and finishes in the next to the last verse. So let's just take a quick survey this morning and see if we can understand and gain an appreciation for who we are as a church by pressing into this metaphor that so saturates God's Word. We're going to be looking, and you can see the outline there in your bulletin. That's the one I'll be following, and I'll move subtly from one point to the next, not making a big deal out of it, but we will move from past to present to future. Glimpses of the bride that have been true in the past, according to God's word, glimpses of the bride that are true in the present, currently in our lives, glimpses of the bride that will be true in the future, promises of God yet unfulfilled that are cast in this marital imagery so let's look into this together glimpses of the bride that have been true in the past we've already seen on the screen this morning God's blessing on the first man and woman Genesis 1:28. as their creation was summarized as God's sixth day activity but when the story of creation, especially the creation of this man and this woman, is retold in greater detail in Genesis 2 with an, with an eye toward a, a clearer and deeper grasp of, of what it meant to fill the earth and subdue it, we notice a couple of interesting features. First, there was 
some sort of time gap between God's creation of the man and his creation of the woman. It, it, it sounds like it was all at once there in Genesis 1, and, and we see some things happening in and around it in Genesis 2. During that window of delay, a couple of things had happened. God noted the, the first thing in all of creation that was not good. He said it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not just because the man might be lonely or may need the sort of help that my wife regularly points out as arising whenever men gather without women present. That's not the answer to why it's not good that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. What God is saying here is that without the woman as his matching and suitable helper... There's no way for the man alone to fulfill the role that God has assigned to the two of them together in Genesis 1. It won't work. So before creating the woman, God did some more things. He paraded the entire animal kingdom before the man, not just so that he could demonstrate the man's role as God's surrogate ruler over all creation, by naming the animals, but also so that he would recognize the uniqueness of the woman once he saw her. And he did recognize the uniqueness of the woman once he saw her. Moses records that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the, man, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The Bible's theme verse on marriage that's the foundational description of what a marriage relationship is. And there are several layers of meaning wrapped together in this one flesh description. When I just take them apart one at a time. We'll look at three. Most immediately in the context here, it refers to a child that's born into the world through this man and through this woman. Who've come together in obedience to God to be fruitful and multiply and in experience of his blessing of Genesis 1.28. The little one born to their joining literally is a one flesh union of the two. Through what we now understand as a, as a pairing of their DNA. And that's how God designed it to work. That's how the species is propagated. These two come together in loving relationship with one another and life is begotten. Just like the love of God within the circle of the Trinity begets the life of his image-bearing creatures. But then if we add in the three occasions on which this passage is quoted in the New Testament, we'll see some additional layers beyond this very physical one flesh union of the man and the woman. When Jesus quoted this passage, for instance, in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10, he was underscoring that the joining of husband and wife is an act of God and therefore is permanent. 
Mark records it thus, what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. He quotes Genesis 2.24 and then says, this joining is God's work. We shouldn't separate it. That's one way to understand one flesh, inseparable because of the sovereign joining that God has performed through the declaration at the marriage celebration. When Paul quoted Genesis 2.24 in his letter to Corinth, chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, he used it to describe the union forged by sexual coupling even outside of marriage. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Not all clean and pure in this one flesh union. But it's when it's quoted by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians that we see the layer of meaning that's most helpful to us today. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He who loves his wife loves himself. Just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. And he quotes Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, Paul writes. And you read the history of interpretation of Genesis 2.24 without the cross in view. It is a profound mystery. This is a profound mystery, Paul writes, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What we learn here is that the union between Christ and the church captures the deepest, longest-lasting meaning of the statement that Moses made about the union of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Before the fall. Think about that. The union of Christ and the church means that he has laid down his life for her and cleansed her by his sacrifice. Paul's saying it was a profound mystery until this description came, which means that before Adam and Eve even fell in the garden, the description is given that can only be understood once we have a fallen humanity redeemed by the sacrificial blood of Christ. Salvation, my friends, is of the Lord. It is His plan and purpose from beginning to end. And we can draw some deep and profound theological understanding just from the metaphor He uses this salvation. So it's here in Ephesians 5 that the true mystery bound up in those words from Genesis 2 finds its clearest and fullest expression. The union between Christ and the church is best understood by us then as a sort of marriage union. That's how we'll get our arms around it and understand the nature of our saving faith in Him. Or better, 
Considering how Paul used Genesis 2 here in Ephesians 5, marriage is given to us not just as the means of fulfilling our original Great Commission charge to be fruitful and multiply, but as our best hope of understanding the truest nature of our own union with Christ. And therefore, the second Great Commission to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, make disciples. It's our best hope of understanding the truest nature of our own union with Christ as his redeemed people, as his body, his household, his flock, the temple of God in which he dwells by his spirit, a pillar and buttress of the truth here on earth. And yet citizens of heaven for all eternity, this is how we grasp it. This is how we see how it works. This is how we pick up on the intimacy and nature of the relational bond that comes as we receive Christ as Savior and are brought in to the fellowship of the local church. Marital bliss is the happiest, most fulfilled covenant union of husband and wife. Is the, it's the only image we have in this life that can even begin, even begin to help us understand the joy and flourishing satisfaction of our union with Christ in heaven for all eternity. It's the picture. It's the foreshadowing. It's not the inbreaking. you understand. Our fellowship here in the body, our worship and service, there's the inbreaking of that relational community of heaven. Marriage is just an illustration of it. Pictures it. And when husband and wife labor in obedience to God's word to enact that illustration, we start seeing a clear picture of the fruit that the gospel bears in the lives of the whole church. As we embrace Christ as Savior and Lord, husband. This imagery is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's union with Israel. Ezekiel 16, I, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And we could continue on. However, the prophets also spell out in sometimes graphic imagery how horribly decadent it was when Israel continually drifted into idolatry. They were despising their marriage covenant, breaking their marriage vows in the very most offensive of ways. You can read about that in a number of Jeremiah 3 is vivid. The prophecy of Hosea is rich, just rooted in this imagery. Hosea being sent out to find a prostitute and commit in marriage to her, living out an illustration of God's relationship with Israel. We'll be studying Ezekiel next. Chapters 16 and 23, they're hard to read. Idolatry is atrocious. And God makes that clear in his word. 
And the only way we can understand the true nature of it, or even begin to understand it, is to picture a blissful human marriage invaded by unfaithfulness. We don't have time to go into all of that this morning, but we will understand it better in coming weeks, God willing, as we move through this dense but helpful prophecy of Ezekiel together. And even though God goes so far as to mention in several places, but Jeremiah 3 being one that you could turn to quickly and read, he goes so far as to mention a decree of divorce because of Israel's unfaithfulness. And think of those conditions that are set up for divorce in Matthew 19 by Jesus in relation to his own marriage relationship with Old Testament Israel. Marital unfaithfulness is basis for divorce. Even though God goes so far as to mention a decree of divorce, he remains faithful even while his bride doesn't. We'll also see that in Ezekiel and a number of other places in the Old Testament. Hosea again, Jeremiah, Isaiah. For instance, in Isaiah, God promised that as the bridegroom, Isaiah 62, late in the prophecy, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Our God is faithful in the delivery of his salvation. When he's made his promises, he will keep them. And even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We read the prophecy of Hosea and we can barely process it. How does this man continually go back and purchase his wife out of the slave market of sin into which she has willingly gone? Such is the picture of our saving God and his unconditional promises of love. Let's move on and get some understanding of how this metaphor now shows itself today in the present. Here we're looking at the realities the New Testament tells us are true of the church. That's what we'll see. And so if they're true of the church, they're true of us still today. They're written to the New Testament churches, but they are our present-day experience. We just referenced Ephesians 5, and that surely gives the big picture, Jesus' self-sacrificing devotion to his chosen ones, raising them from spiritual death and moral filth, Ephesians 2, raising them up to radiant splendor, holy and without blemish in Ephesians 5. They're made into a bride suitable to the eternal Son of God by the saving work of His shed blood applied to them, cleansing them, transferring to Him the guilt for their sin and granting to them by faith the righteousness that is His. So He reconciles us to God and therefore makes us a suitable bride Clothed in good works, we read in Revelation 19. Good works that only He could enable them to do. Good works that He prepared in advance that we should walk in them. The fulfillment of the gospel. We're saved by grace 
through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance, that we should walk in them. And as we do, he's clothing us for the wedding day, getting us in a place where we're suited and ready to walk down the aisle together as a fitting bride for the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords who purchased our cleansing with his own shed blood, with his own death, and then secured our life with his resurrection. Once we're introduced to this image, we begin to see how every stage of the bride's relationship with the bridegroom has been initiated by God. For instance, Jesus said in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws This is God's work in building a bride for his son. The, the flavor of this drawing is described by one commentator as the wonderful wooing of a lover. It's a romantic drawing into relationship. The father wooing the bride for the son. Parent-arranged marriages are surely not the norm these days. Although as a father of daughters, I'm not opposed to that. <laughs> but we can appreciate beauty here. And it's God the Father selecting a bride for God the Son. There, there's a sweetness to that that just exceeds our own experiential understanding. In his great love for us, God draws in each of us to become part of the bride, part of his, his chosen bride for his eternal son. And that's the work that God does on our behalf. Our response to this drawing from the Father is saving belief. Back to Ephesians 2 again, that, that only He can grant. Our response is saving belief. And then we immediately, Ephesians 1, are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until we take possession of it. What do we learn from this? We learn that the Spirit is a sort of, a sort of engagement ring that we cherish as a token that proves what? That secures what? It secures that we won't be left at the altar on our wedding day. That's what. The Spirit is given to us as the very earnest on the down payment of the delivery of our salvation, which is presented through this metaphor as a marriage supper, the wedding reception following the ceremony where our union with Christ is celebrated for all eternity. What we're hearing here is that we will surely be present in the scene that's painted by today's passage in Revelation 19. We'll be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But even then, he gives a token. Hold us firm until the day. And that token is the very Spirit of God who indwells us when we savingly believe. will be present in that Revelation 19 scene to rejoice and exult and give him glory, as the text says, 
on our wedding day when the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Isn't that a great picture? That's a great picture. Until that day, we anticipate it as a bride anticipates her wedding day. That's how we live our life in this world. Anticipating that day as a bride anticipates her wedding day. Think about that. You, many of you have been brides. Many of you have been bridesmaids and know what this means in the life of your friends. Grooms have this same experience. But the bride is the epitome of it. Associating everything in life with that day. Interpreting all things in life as they impact that day. Backtiming every activity of life from that day. Making herself ready. <laughs> I've often used as an illustration. Imagine being a bride dress, bridal gown manufacturer and having a busy week and the bride comes in to pick up her dress and they, you have to say, you know what, I'm sorry it's been a busy week. It won't be ready till Monday. You think you'll get return business? We understand what that looks like. Everything in life is back time from that day to be ready at that moment. When we read the words over and over again in the eschatological portions of God's word to stay awake, we're, we're talking about a similar picture here. This is just how we live life in the present, anticipating the day. Honestly, my friends, when we understand that we're the bride of Christ, nothing else even makes sense. We're fooling ourselves. We're living in a dream world if this isn't central. It changes how we do everything. And all of this looks forward to a future reality when we will finally be joined to our bridegroom and carried across the threshold of our new celestial home. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The place prepared for us by God so matches who we are as the bride of Christ that we're forever associated with the city in which we live. It so matches who we are, whom Jesus' self-sacrificial love has enabled us to become, that the city itself is called the bride. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, with humankind, with his redeemed ones. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Here's their house. And God is there. And that statement will come to mean much, much more to us as we study Ezekiel. It's the closing word of that prophecy. 
The Lord is there. This is what the church is, my friends. This is what the church is. It's the bride of Christ. The one so deeply and unconditionally loved by Jesus that the only suitable image is a treasured wife for all eternity living in joyful union with the, the king of kings in the place that he rules. Three quick points of clarification as we move toward a conclusion. First of all, how, how does this work? So the first observation is that our union with Christ has to be made clear. It's not a sexual union just because of the imagery of the bride that is used to illustrate it. It's not a sexual union. Jesus himself said in Matthew 22, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels. It's just the best we can do in human experience. The consummating act of human marriage is, is simply the best illustration we have in this life of the all-encompassing, all-engaging intimacy and fullness and transparency of our union with Christ in heaven. But that future reality will surely outdistance this present illustration. Just as the true beauty of heaven will surely exceed our present imaginings of it. Second, even so, communion with Christ in this life still takes precedence over the illustration in marriage. This is important to note for those who are married and also for those who aren't. There's a higher calling still. This illustration will always bow to the reality. 1 Corinthians 7, when giving instruction to husbands and wives on their responsibilities to one another in marriage, their relational, intimate responsibilities to one another, Paul wrote these words. He said, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then he finishes, and then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It means the only activity that has God's approval to interrupt the intimacy of an intimate marriage is prayer. The reality of communication and communion with God of which this act of marriage is simply an illustration. Third, many have stumbled over the perspective that the church as the bride of Christ makes it sound like Jesus is a polygamist. Having many wives. Look how many are present even just this morning. But my friends, uh, that is our stubborn individualism showing its head again. We are not each the bride of Christ. We are all together the bride of Christ. It's the church that's the bride. The church is a plural unity, just like the body is a plural unity with all of its parts. It's as the church that we're the bride of Christ, not as individuals. We're individually a part of it, so we have the joy of being a bride personally, yes. 
But it says the body that we're the bride. And it's this reality that's so amazing to see. The very plan of God for the fullness of times, we're told in Ephesians 1, is to unite all things in Christ. Every dividing wall of hostility broken down in him by his shed blood. It's together that we are his people. It's together that we are the body of Christ, the household of God, his flock. It's together that we're the temple, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We're citizens of heaven together as one. We worship together. We pray together. We grow toward maturity together. Ephesians 4. We strive toward purity together, taking good care of one another. 2 Timothy 2, Hebrews 3. We strive toward purity together, toward a readiness for the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we might be well-dressed when that day arrives. We anticipate that day together. Learning to love Jesus together. Remembering together to walk in his ways. We become more and more aware over time that our growing love for God just shows itself as a growing love for one another, which is the very thing that enables the success of the great commission that we're now pursuing. It's by our love for one another that the world will per perceive that we're his disciples. It's the greatest work we have to share the gospel is the love of the bride for one another that is the real life manifestation of her love for the bridegroom. And his word tells us over and over and over again that this is so. So we make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace because there's, there's one body and one spirit, just as we were called to one hope when we were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Because there is one bread, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, one bread at this table that draws our attention to our coming marriage supper. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. We who are many are one body, just striving together to help one another remember who we are. As we continue to grow in our love for one another, it's just one manifestation. The central one, yes, but, but still just one manifestation among many of the good works that are enabled in us by our faith, the righteous deeds that clothe us like a wedding dress in preparation for that day. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. It's illustrated in the very foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb in this symbolic feast that we enjoy together weekly the body and blood of the Lord. 
Friends, this is the church, the bride of Christ, and together, together, we long for the day of our wedding feast. Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. God and the church together saying to Jesus, come. And Jesus responds a few verses later, just before the end of the book, surely I am coming soon. And what's the response of the church? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for that day as the day of our wedding, the day of our union with Christ for all eternity. So, my friends, let's now celebrate this together. First, by, by welcoming new members into this subset of the bride. We had, what, 31 or 32 a couple of weeks ago, and I don't want to call these the leftovers, but these are the ones that couldn't be here that day, finishing out that group. And we need to be introduced to them and to embrace them into membership. And then we need to come to the table of the Lord together with a vision of our future marriage feast, now freshly renewed in our hearts.